Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I hope you guys are doing super, super well. So welcome to episode 32. Today's case is truly shocking. There was a movie made about this, so I actually watched the movie first before I even knew that this was a true story. The movie absolutely shocked me. I just couldn't believe that this had actually happened in real life. Imagine being a high school algebra math teacher who showed up to your job every single day and just did the best that you could to make an impact on your students. You enjoy your career as a teacher, but eventually you move on. Before you know it, 15 years have gone by. At this point, you're living a completely different life. You're ready to go on a missionary trip when all of a sudden, a former student of yours shows up. Now, it's been 15 years since you were their teacher, so you don't really remember the student, but they remember you. It turns out that your former student has been stalking you for the past 15 years. This person has been planning on how they were going to abduct you and even try to abduct you at least four times without you even knowing. Well, that is exactly what happened to Mary Stauffer. Not only was Mary affected by the stalker, but so was her daughter Beth, as well as a six-year-old little boy named Jason. This is just an absolutely frightening case. My heart breaks for what everyone had to go through during this time. I do want to put a trigger warning because we are going to be talking about sexual assault. There is just so much information to go over. So with that, let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Mary and Beth Stauffer and Jason Wilkman. Mary Stauffer was born on January 1st, 1943 in West Duluth, Minnesota. When she was just 10 years old, her family moved to Hermantown, which was a suburb in Duluth. Now, Mary and her family were very religious. They were all very active in the Baptist church, and even as a young kid, Mary was very involved in her church. She did lots of volunteer work for them, and she just loved being a part of this community. When she was 16 years old, she was volunteering at her church when she met a man named Irving Stauffer, who was just two to three years older than her and was attending Bethel University studying math. The two of them instantly hit it off and they began dating. In 1961, Mary graduated high school and she actually joined her boyfriend Irv at Bethel University where she majored in math with a minor in music. Now, as for what Irv was doing, he had actually become a seminary student at Bethel University. That way he could eventually become a priest. Even though he was studying to become a priest, Mary and Irving continued to date during this time and she eventually graduated in 1965. After this, she started her new journey of being a high school math teacher. She was now living in Roseville and she was teaching the ninth grade at Ramsey High School, which was just about 30 minutes away from her house. At some point, the two of them got married and part of Irving's seminary program required him to go on missionary trips. So Mary decided to take a little break from teaching during this time to join Irv on these trips to the Philippines from 1967 to 19. 68. This was actually their first missionary trips as a couple. The trips were for a few months and then the couple would return back to their life in Minnesota. Mary eventually went back to teaching and she was teaching there for a while before the couple decided to move to a small village called Polk, Nebraska. Irv had finally become a Baptist minister and he was asked to be the pastor of a congregation in the village. The congregation was really taking a risk by taking in a new seminary graduate with no pastor experience and Mary 
Mary and Irv were also taking a risk by moving to a town where they knew nobody. But the community took them in and they were all very kind and loving towards them. The original plan was to stay in Polk for two years, but they decided to stay for five. While living in Polk, they had a daughter named Beth in 1972. And then shortly after in 1974, they had their son, Steve. In 1975, when Beth was three years old and Steve was one, the family went on another missionary trip to the Philippines, but this time their plan was to stay for a few years rather than just a few months. During this time, they started many new churches in the central islands of the Philippines. In 1979, the Soffer family returned back from the Philippines and moved into the Baptist missionary apartments in Arden Hills, Minnesota. They were on a one-year furlough, so their plan was to only live there for one year before returning to their missionary work in the Philippines. Now, Arden Hills was a suburban city in in Ramsey County. This was where the Bethel University was located, so Mary and Irv were basically back to where they started from. A year passed and it was May of 1980 and the family was getting ready for their move back to the Philippines. The plan was to be there for four years, so they had packed everything up, you know, boxed all of their belongings because they were basically taking everything with them. I mean, four years is a long time to go to the Philippines, but the family was really excited about this and they were ready for this new chapter. But unfortunately, on Friday, May 16th, 1980, everything for the family would change. Now, let's take a break to hear from our sponsors at Uncommon Goods. Guys, the holiday season is here and I'm so excited for my favorite activity during this time of the year giving gifts. I love finding special and unique gifts for friends and family, and my goal is to always surprise them with something they've never seen before. So if you're anything like me, Uncommon Goods is going to be your secret weapon this holiday season. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or your entire family, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. Now that the holidays are here, it's a perfect time to give someone a cute mug, a cute candle. I mean, Uncommon Goods just has so many unique gifts on there that add to the cozy holiday season. They also offer experiences that you can do. So if you want to take a cooking class, that's also available for you. When you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. So nothing from a generic brand or a popular store. These fine products are often made in small batches. So shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods finds products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade here in the US. They have the most meaningful, out of the ordinary, and unique gifts that spark conversations. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. Not the same lackluster gifts that you can find anywhere. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. That's what the holiday spirit is all about. So to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash what happened. That's uncommongoods.com slash what happened for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon goods were all out of the ordinary. Now back to the case. So let's talk about what happened that day. This was just five days before Mary and her family was supposed to leave for the Philippines. 36-year-old Mary woke up that day and she was trying to do all the last-minute things that she needed to do before her move. She decided that she wanted to give Steve and Beth fresh haircuts. That way they would look and feel their best once they arrived in the Philippines. 
So that morning, she took her six-year-old son, Steve, to go get his haircut at Carmen's Beauty Salon. After that, they ran a couple of more errands, and one of the last things on her to-do list was to go give Beth her haircut. At around 3.45 p.m., Mary came home, and she picked up eight-year-old Beth and took her to go get her haircut at the beauty salon. She was driving a 1973 Ford LTD, which they were actually borrowing from the church. And the salon was like really close to their house. It was only a five minute drive, so it was supposed to be a quick errand. They were supposed to get the haircut, finish up, and then come back home to continue packing and just get everything ready for the big move. While Mary went to the beauty salon with Beth, Irv stayed home with Steve. Mary and Beth pulled up to the beauty salon, Beth got her hair cut, and then according to the employees, the pair left and presumably started heading home. Now, Irv's sister and some of their friends had planned a little going away dinner party for the family, so they all arrived to their house at around 6 p.m., ready to have dinner and just enjoy the night with Mary and the family. But to everyone's surprise, Mary and Beth were still not home. Now, back then, I feel like cell phones weren't really that common, so I'm not sure if Mary just didn't have have one yet or if they weren't really a thing but Irv was not able to get in contact directly with Mary so he ended up calling the hair salon to see if maybe they knew what had happened the hair salon confirmed that yes they had made it to the appointment but that they had left the salon at around 4 30 p.m which at that point was about two and a half hours ago now Irv was really starting to get worried because if Mary and Beth were not at the hair salon where were they? Two and a half hours had passed, so if they were just going to go stop at a store real quick to buy some food or, you know, to just buy something, they would have been home by then. Irv just didn't know what to do. He just had a really bad feeling. You know, something in his gut was telling him that something was wrong. So he started contacting some of his missionary colleagues to see if maybe they knew what had happened to Mary and Beth. He started calling local hospitals to see if maybe they were in an accident, but there really were no answers. There was no record of them ever being at the hospital and none of their friends or family had seen Mary or Beth. So that night on May 16th, Irv called the police to report his wife Mary and their daughter Beth as missing. Now, the police didn't really seem to spring into action. At this point, Mary is an adult, so if she doesn't come home on time, that's not really a crime. Detectives honestly just assumed that Mary was still out running errands or that she just didn't want to come home. So they didn't really move in on the investigation right away, which of course was very frustrating for Irv. He just felt like police were not prioritizing the disappearance of his wife and of his child. Now, one of the main reasons why police weren't really focused on the case is because they were actually busy with another missing person, six-year-old Jason Wilkman. Now, a little bit about Jason. Jason was a six-year-old little boy who was loved by his friends and family. Everyone says that he was a cheerful and curious kid. Six-year-old Jason Wilkman had gone missing that same afternoon. Now, what's odd is that Jason had actually gone missing from the same area as the beauty salon, which is where Beth and Mary were last seen. A lot of people thought that this was like a really strange coincidence since, since this wasn't like an everyday occurrence in Roseville. The town was pretty safe, so the fact that a mom and a daughter had gone missing and a six-year-old boy around the same area, it definitely raised a lot of red flags for some people. However, Irv confirmed that the family did not know Jason, so since there wasn't a relationship between Jason and Mary and Beth, detectives felt like there just wasn't a connection between both disappearances. Detectives were pretty much just focusing on Jason's disappearance, which, I mean, of course they should. I mean, he's a six-year-old little kid, but I definitely feel like they also should have been prioritizing Beth and her mom. 
I mean, Beth was also just a young child, so I don't understand how they weren't more worried about their whereabouts. The family states that at first, detectives were looking at Mary and Beth's disappearances as maybe a domestic issue. You know, maybe something was going on in the family and Mary just wanted to run away with her youngest daughter to get away from everything. Maybe she just wanted to get away from life and just didn't want to tell her husband about what was happening. That's a theory that detectives were going with at the beginning. They also thought that maybe there was some type of marital issues between Mary and Irv and that she had ran away from him. They also thought that maybe Irv was a little bit suspicious in most cases. I feel like I've said this before, detectives always look at the loved ones first. You know, they look at the girlfriend, the boyfriend, the husband, the wife, etc. Because in most cases, you know, the culprit is usually a family member. So they actually went to the house to question Irv and they were kind of implying that maybe he had something to do with the disappearances or that he had something to do with making Mary want to leave him. So while police were trying to figure out whether or not this was actually a serious case and if Irv was involved with the disappearance of his wife and daughter, detectives were focusing on finding Jason. They put together a timeline of what happened the day Jason disappeared. That day, he was at Hazelnut Park with one of his friends, who for the sake of the video, we're going to call Carl. The two of them were just playing, hanging around the parking lot when all of a sudden, they saw a car pull up next to them. The driver of the car was just acting really weird. There was just something off about this guy and it definitely caught the attention of six-year-old Jason and his friend. So they approached the car and that's when all of a sudden, Carl saw a man pick up Jason and throw him in the trunk of his car. Miraculously, this man did not spot Carl, which is why he didn't pick him up. So as soon as a man drove away with Jason, Carl ran back home and started asking for help. So it was obvious that Jason had been abducted, but who did this and why? Detectives went to the park the next morning to see if there was any clues or potential witnesses that could lead them to the kidnapper. They did end up finding a license plate on the ground, so they ran the numbers to see who it would belong to. And when they got the results, of the license plate, they were shocked. This license plate belonged to the car that Mary had been driving the day she disappeared. Now, Mary's car was green, so the fact that a green car was seen in the parking lot and her license plate was found there, it definitely confirmed to detectives that Mary's car had been there. With this information, it became clear to detectives that the disappearance of Mary and Beth were connected to the disappearance of Jason. But if Mary and Beth didn't know Jason and Jason didn't know them, how were the three connected? I mean, were they abducted by the same person? I mean, how did this even happen? Thankfully, Jason's friend Carl was able to give a description of the man. That way they could create a composite sketch and about 300 officers and volunteers searched the surrounding areas looking for any signs of Jason or of any clues in the case. Now, as I mentioned, detectives thought that maybe Irv was the suspect, but they actually made him take a lie detector test, which he passed. Once a composite sketch was done, investigators ran the image of the suspect in the newspapers. But they also ran it alongside Irv's photo, so some people genuinely thought that Irv had done this. And there actually were some similarities between the sketch and Irv. The suspect had glasses, and so did Irv, and their hair didn't look similar, but when the two photos are next to each other, it's very easy for people to think that the hair might actually be the same. I really don't know why the investigators or the media did this because it led to a lot of useless tips. Irv said that people would just call in to say, the husband did it. So I don't really know the thought process behind that. I feel like that's just not helpful. Instead of actually getting useful tips, police were just getting these honestly like pointless tips about Irv being the suspect. 
Now, when Mary's brother, Tom, heard of Mary and Beth's disappearance from his parents, he was not very hopeful. He thought that it was just surreal that something like this could happen to someone in his family. At the time, Tom was a softball coach at Herman High School, and people say that he would just break down crying on the bus on the way to school. Irv's faith was also being tested. He didn't know if he would ever see his wife or his daughter ever again. He tried really hard to hold on to his faith and he prayed that the Lord would take care of Mary and Beth. At one point during the investigation, FBI agent Gary Samwell called Irv and said that they had found an unidentified woman's body in southern Minnesota. However, after the body's dental records came back, it confirmed that this body was not Mary's body. After this, Irv let out a huge sigh of relief. He just felt so encouraged to believe that Mary and Beth were still out there and that they were still alive. Now, two weeks had gone by since Mary and Beth had gone missing, which I just can't even imagine what the family was going through during those two weeks. Imagine not having any answers as to what happened to your loved ones or if they were still alive or anything. On June 30th, there was finally some movement in the case. This is when Irv received a letter in the mail from his wife, Mary. The letter said that Mary wasn't missing and had just gone away just like the police had assumed. And she also urged the police to stop looking for her. As soon as Irv read this letter, he just couldn't believe this. He thought that maybe Mary had been forced to write this by a kidnapper. Then a second letter from Mary arrived soon after. And in this one, she urged the police to stop the investigation or they would never see her again. Irv did not believe that Mary had written these letters on her own and knew that a kidnapper had forced her to do this. So he showed these letters to detectives and to the FBI and they actually agreed with him. They also felt like these letters were very forced and that it was obvious that Mary and Beth had been kidnapped. On June 16th, which was actually Father's Day and a month after Mary and Beth were missing, the Stauffer's home phone rang and Irv picked it up. On the other end of the call was six-year-old Beth. The FBI actually taped this conversation and here is that phone call. Hello, Irv speaking. Hello, Dad. Yes, Bethy. Are you okay? Yep. Is Mommy okay? Yes. That's good. Oh, I'm... Daddy, yes. Happy Father's Day. Oh, thank you so much, sweetie. You're fine, Dad. Oh, I'm so glad. We can't talk anymore. Um, when can you come home? I don't know. Can I talk... Can you okay, Dad? Can I talk to him? No. Okay, you call again. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye, sweetie. Now, for whatever reason, the FBI was not able to trace the phone call. This phone call was also just very weird because the kidnapper didn't even ask for a ransom in exchange for Mary and Beth, and they didn't even ask Beth to tell her dad what he had to do to get them back or anything like that. It honestly seemed like the kidnapper just allowed her to call her dad and say Happy Father's Day, but why? It was clear that the kidnapper didn't want money, so what did he want? Irv was just so confused and just so heartbroken by this call. I mean, can you imagine getting that a month after your daughter and your wife went missing? You have no idea if they're alive or what's happening, but then you get to hear your daughter's voice and you just still can't get to them though. 
Like the fact that you can speak to her on the phone and like hear her voice, but can't see them in person or even find them must have been just so terrible. But honestly, Irv was just so grateful to know that Beth was still alive and that's what he needed to focus on. After this phone call, days went by with no updates in the case. That was until July 7th, 1980, when the Ramsey County Sheriff's Office received a phone call. Calling in was Mary Stoffer herself. Mary was put on hold twice which is crazy, before Sergeant Mike Fowler came on the line. Mary said, quote, This is Mary Stauffer, the Arden Hills kidnap victim, and I would like someone to come get us. Sergeant Mike was shocked when he heard this, and Mary then gave them an address to pick her up from. When the police arrived at 1960 North Hamline Avenue, they found Mary and Beth crouching behind a car that was wrapped in plastic. They had been hiding in case their kidnapper returned. The police were so thrilled to find Mary and Beth, and they just really wanted to give them a hug. Mary and Beth did not look well though. They honestly looked extremely fatigued, but at the same time, they were just so relieved to have finally been found. Now, when Mary and Beth were found, Irv was actually talking to Samuel, an FBI agent, about a third letter that Mary had written and sent to her parents that morning. Samuel told Irv and Mary's parents that something was happening, but he didn't want to give them much more detail. Soon after, a sheriff's deputy arrived at Irv's home and took Irv and Steve to the sheriff's office. In the deputy's car, Irv was very nervous. He had no idea what was happening and he kept listening to the deputy's radio to try to figure out what was going on. I mean, where were they taking us? He heard that an all points bulletin sent out on a broadcast for a man named Ming Shu and for his black van. The dispatcher said that the suspect may be armed and dangerous and that the suspect may have passengers with him. Irv was just getting really frustrated with the lack of information. He was starting to think of all the different types of scenarios that could be happening. Was the police in pursuit of the kidnapper and he had Mary and Beth with him in the van? Was this a hostage situation? Was his family safe? Were they hurt? There were just so many things running through his head at this point. Now, when Irv is trying to think of all this, that is when he is finally told that Mary and Beth had managed to escape. I just can't even imagine how relieved he must have been and I wonder why they didn't just tell him right away that his wife and his daughter had been found. Now, when Irv saw Mary and Beth, he just ran over to them and gave them the biggest hug ever and told Mary how much he loved her. He then picked up Beth in his arms and it was just a really emotional moment for the entire family. As for Steve, he was a little reserved during the reunion, but you know, he was so little at this time. He knew that his mom and that his sister had been kidnapped, but he didn't fully understand what that meant, which I guess is a good thing for a child to not really understand something so disturbing. Irv saw that Mary and Beth were still chained together with cables and bicycle locks, and they both just looked so pale, and Mary looked like she had lost about 20 pounds. As for Mary, she was just so beyond happy to see her husband and to see her child. She noticed that Steve had grown taller in the seven and a half weeks that she had been missing. His pants were actually getting shorter. Now, while the family was enjoying their reunion, the police arrested 30-year-old Ming Shu, the kidnapper, the very same day from his electronics store. When he was arrested, he acted like he had no idea what was going on, but when he got to the police station, he actually saw Mary there. Like, she was still there. I don't know how they were able to see each other. But when he saw Mary, he yelled out at her, quote, Why did you leave me? After he was booked, he was taken to the Ramsey County Adult Detention Center to await the investigation. This is just crazy. The fact that they had been missing for seven and a half weeks, like, that is actually so frightening to think about what they went through during those seven and a half weeks and for what Irv and the family had to go through as well. I mean, 
it's a miracle that they were found alive, that they were found safe and technically healthy. Now that we know that their kidnapper Ming Shu was caught, let's go over Mary and Beth's perspective of what happened the day they were kidnapped on May 16th. I mean, who was Ming and why did he kidnap Mary and Beth? Well, as we know, Mary and Beth had gone to the hair salon that day and as they were heading back to their car, they were on opposite sides of the car and they were both about to get inside when suddenly this man, who was Ming, appeared out of nowhere and pulled out a gun. He put the gun to Beth's side and Mary is on the other side of this car just absolutely terrified. Ming told her that he needed a ride so they all got into the car and he told Mary to drive north. Now I've mentioned this in other episodes but I just want to say again if you ever find yourself in a situation like this the FBI actually says that your best chance of survival is fighting for your life right then and not going to a secondary location. Obviously Mary did what she thought was the safest option for her daughter but again i just wanted to let everyone know about that tip so they all get in the car and as they're driving mary says to ming quote look i don't know where you're going but you need to get there quickly i have company coming for supper ming just told her to keep driving at one point they stopped at a red light and a police car pulled up behind them ming said to mary and beth that if the police car turns the same direction that they turn they're going to die so the red light turns green, but thankfully the police didn't turn the same way as them and now Mary, Beth, and Ming just continued driving. They kept driving and then Ming told Mary to pull over and they all got out of the car. Ming then duct taped their arms and their legs together and then opened the car's trunk. Mary begged him to not put them in the trunk and told him that they wouldn't be able to breathe in there, but Ming put them both in the trunk face down. After this, Ming got back in the car and he drove for a short amount of time. In this time, Beth had been able to get her duct tape off and she was trying to get her mother's when Ming stopped the car and opened the trunk again. He saw what they were doing and he actually threw a spare tire on them so that they couldn't move. Now, suddenly, something else was put on Mary's feet and the trunk closed again and Ming began driving. Mary started to hear some whimpering sounds and she realized that what was put in the trunk was another child, which was six-year-old Jason Wilkman, the little boy that I mentioned earlier. Again, just to recap, Jason was with his friend Carl at the park when he suddenly spotted a car coming to a stop near them. The driver was Ming and he was just acting really weird. Something about his behavior caught Jason's attention, so he started looking around Ming's car. Honestly, I think that Jason was just acting like a typical curious child. Carl stayed near the front of the car, but Jason went all the way to the back of the trunk and that's when he saw Ming threatening Mary who was bound in the trunk. As soon as Ming realized that Jason had spotted him, he freaked out and kidnapped Jason. He was scared Jason would go and tell someone about what he had seen, so he took Jason, but what he didn't realize is that Carl was there. Carl saw all of this happen, but again, somehow Ming didn't spot him. So that's how Jason ended up in the trunk. Mary told Jason who her and Beth were and their ages and she told them that she didn't know this man and that she didn't know what he was going to do with them. Jason told them that he was supposed to visit his grandma and grandpa tomorrow, but now he wouldn't be able to. All three of them admitted that they were scared. Can you imagine being in the situation? Like, I just think about this and I'm like, the fact that Mary and Beth are just in the back of this trunk, just scared for their life of what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, your kidnapper kidnaps someone else and puts them in the trunk with you. A six-year-old little boy. Must have been so frightening for Beth and for Mary and just so confusing as well for Jason. Like, how was he even wrapped up in this? And honestly, 
Jason was only six years old, so the fact that Ming thought that he would say something, which maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't, it's just really sad that he felt the need to take a six-year-old little boy. So they continue driving when all of a sudden the car stops. There were footsteps heard outside and then the trunk was opened and Jason was taken out. Beth said that she saw Ming take a long bent bar made out of metal out of the trunk too and then the trunk was closed again. Mary said that it was quiet for a while and she thought that Ming had left them to die a slow death in the trunk. Some time passed and Ming came back and opened up the trunk. He took Mary and Beth and he actually put them in the van and blindfolded them. But Jason isn't inside this van. Mary asked Ming what happened to the little boy and he said that he left him somewhere where he could be found. But that wasn't true and we'll get into that a little bit later. After this, Ming parks the van and they all get out. He takes them into his Roseville home and he forces them into a closet that would be their home for the next 53 days. 53 days, you guys, inside of a closet. Now, inside, there was a single light bulb with a pool chain to turn it off and on and a small thin blanket and two small throw pillows. Once they were in the closet, Ming took a screwdriver and he actually removed the inside doorknob. He then closed the door and there was no way for Mary and Beth to get out. Now, they were still duct taped, so they weren't even able to reach the light. The only thing that they could do was lie on the floor of this little closet and just wait. I mean, just think about what was going to happen next. And I don't even know. I just can't picture that happening. Like imagine being stuck inside of a little closet with your hands tied. You can't really do anything. And you just have to sit there in silence with your mom. Now, Ming told them repeatedly that if they did try to run away, he would kill them. And if one of them did get away, he would kill the other one. The next day, Mary is taken out into the living room and tied to a couch. Ming removes her blindfold and that's when she sees a small camcorder. Ming turns it on and he kind of begins to interview Mary. So this is when the motive of this whole kidnapping is revealed. And this is when Mary discovers that Ming was her student in her ninth grade algebra class 15 years ago, when Ming was just 15 years old. Ever since Ming had her as an algebra math teacher, Ming had developed romantic feelings for Mary, but now Ming knew everything about Mary and her life. He had been watching and following her for the past 15 years. He had looked into the family home with binoculars and he even followed Mary in her car. Ming was obsessed with Mary. Well, honestly, he was like beyond obsessed. So because he knew everything about Mary's life, he knew that she was about to be moving to the Philippines. So Ming believed that he had to go get her before she left. In his mind, he was in love with Mary and he believed that if she just spent some time with him and, you know, really got to know him, she would love him back. So at the end of the school year, when Mary was Ming's teacher, he had gotten angry over a grade that Mary had given him. And this was a grade that he claims broke his perfect record. So Ming asked Mary, do you remember what grade you gave me? Mary said, well, no, I don't, but it must have been an F for you to do this to me. But in reality, she had given him a B minus. I don't know how this supposed bad grade turned things into an obsessive love, but clearly Ming just wasn't well in the head. So let's talk a little bit about Ming's background. You know, how did it get to this point? How did it get to the point where he stalked his teacher and became obsessed with her to the point where he actually kidnapped her? Well, when Ming was a teenager, he was very violent towards his younger siblings and his mother reported that she was absolutely terrified of him. As a teenager, he started a fire in three separate people's apartments and all of these people were complete strangers to him. He would also throw rocks at cars, which can be extremely dangerous. Ming actually got probation for the fires 
years and he was given a mental health examination and he was then sent to a facility for several weeks. According to his mother's testimony, Ming was uncontrollable as a child. He took no responsibility for his violent actions and often told lies but refused to be proven wrong. She also said that he had no, quote, feelings like a dog. Now, something truly disturbing that Ming's brothers revealed is that when they were younger, Ming would tell them to go into their mom's bedroom to touch her breast. Of course, the siblings said no to this. I mean, who in their right mind would do that to anybody, but let alone to their mother? But that just shows how... I guess sick Ming's mind was since then. There was also another incident when his mom had woken up and she had caught Ming trying to cut a hole in her pajamas where her private parts were. Now, she actually took him to a doctor to see if maybe something was wrong with him and the doctor was like, well, you know, teenagers are sometimes curious about human anatomy, you know, they're curious about body parts. And the mom was kind of just like, okay, I, I guess, like, because the doctor kind of just downplayed it, she just felt like maybe, okay, he's a curious teenager, like, it's fine. But it wasn't fine. Like, no curious teenager would do that to their own mom or to even another person. Like, you don't just try to look at someone's private parts without their consent. That is just a little bit of a backstory of who Ming was, and it kind of just shows that since he was little, he has had some problems. Now, going back to the case, Ming is filming this conversation with Mary, and at this point, this conversation has been going on for hours, and he's trying to convince Mary that she should be in love with him. One of the things he says is, quote, I'm not saying it's right, I know it's not right, but that's the way I've chosen it. He also said, quote, I know, I know, it's an evil thing. Now, Ming actually revealed to Mary that he had tried to kidnap her several times before. Once on July 4th, 1975, so five years before, Ming had found what he believed was Mary's address and he had actually broken into this house. Now, when he got inside, he started pointing a gun at the homeowners who were actually Irv's parents, which I know is crazy. Like, I don't know how he got the addresses confused. Maybe he saw Mary go to this house to go visit her in-laws and he thought that that's where Mary lived. So he broke in hoping to find Mary, but instead he came across her in-laws. Now, Irv also had the same name as his dad. So maybe Ming had looked up Mary's husband's name and saw that that address appeared and that's how he ended up there. So when Ming realizes that Mary doesn't actually live at this house and that he got the wrong address, he actually tied up Irv's parents and told them that if they went to the police, he would kill them. And shockingly, they never reported this incident to the police. So this break-in was never reported, which is so shocking. Like, I understand being scared and thinking maybe he'll come back, but how crazy is it that five years before Mary and Beth were abducted, her in-laws had been tied up by Ming and they just never told anyone. Now, after this, he also tried to break into Mary's current home several times, but was unsuccessful. There was another time when Mary and Irv were living in those apartments that I mentioned earlier. Now, their apartment was located above a utility closet. So somehow Ming found out that they were living in this apartment, he broke into the utility closet and realized that Mary's apartment was right above the ceiling. So he actually cut a hole into the ceiling and that led him to underneath Mary and Irv's bed. And he would kind of just poke his head out into the hole to listen to Mary and Irv's conversations and to just kind of get closer to her, which is so disturbing. Can you imagine later finding out that there was a guy underneath your bed and you didn't even know it? So he had tried to kidnap Mary's a couple of times, but it just never worked. So after this long conversation, 
I mean, it's just a lot. Like, imagine being Mary and hearing this. Hearing that a student from 15 years ago has been holding... I guess the way a grudge against you all these years for a bad grade that you gave him which then turned into a crazy obsession and then just now realizing that that's why you're kidnapped because this student just became obsessed with you and had tried to kidnap you multiple times. It's just a lot for anyone to take in. And unfortunately, the torment did not stop there because after this conversation ended, Ming then proceeded to rape Mary. Mary feared that Ming was going to assault Beth, but Ming said that he wasn't a child molester, that he was only interested in Mary. After this brutal assault, Mary was then sent back into the closet. Beth says that Mary would sometimes come in crying and Beth would ask her, you know, what's wrong, mommy? But of course, Mary didn't want to tell her daughter that she was being assaulted. So she would just tell her daughter, oh, I miss your dad or I miss Steve. Just hearing that makes you so emotional because Mary is so incredibly strong. Imagine being brutally assaulted every single day, but having to remain strong for your daughter. Ming would pretty much rape Mary almost every single day. So as the days went on, Ming wanted Mary to be more loving and more romantic with him. Mary told him that she was married and that she had made vows to her husband. So that's when Ming took a plastic bag, put it over Beth's head, and threatened to kill Beth. So in order to protect her daughter, Mary kissed Ming on the cheek. However, to Ming, that wasn't enough. So then she kissed him on the lips and because of that, he let Beth live. As more days passed, Ming would let Mary and Beth out of the closet, but he would have them chained together. Ming was basically trying to play family. You know, he would act like he was Beth's dad and he even called her Bethy. On June 7th, 23 days into their captivity, Ming decided to rent an RV and take Mary and Beth on a quote, family road trip to Chicago. When they got there, he actually chained Beth up in the RV and Ming and Mary actually went out in public, but Ming did have his gun with him at all times. It's crazy how he was trying to play family. I don't know, taking them on a family vacation, that is actually insane. But of course he was holding Mary at gunpoint during this time because he didn't want her to run away or say anything. And I do just wanna say that a lot of people have judged Mary for this and they kind of question why she wouldn't ask for help when she was literally out in public. But it's something that we've mentioned on this podcast before about how there is such a thing as unwilling consent. Mary didn't go out with Ming because she wanted wanted to you know it's not like she enjoyed being out with him but she consented in a way to being out with him because she knew that if she didn't her daughter would die or she would die so of course she went along with this plan because she was scared i definitely think it's wrong for people to judge her and question the decisions she made now ming had also told mary that if she did try to ask for help in public that he would kill her right in that moment he would kill beth and he would also kill anybody who she told so if she ran up to a random bystander and was like help me i've been kidnapped ming said that he would shoot that bystander and just anybody else nearby so of course mary didn't want to have her blood on her hands, her child's blood on her hands, and strangers' blood on her hands. Now, a lot of people argue that maybe Mary was also trying to build trust with Ming. You know, if she didn't try to run away or escape, then maybe he would trust her more to eventually let her out to more public places and more often. Now, during this vacation at a store, Mary actually used a traveler's check to pay. And the reason she did this was because she knew it would alert the FBI about the transaction since she was a missing person. 
However, it turns out that no one was even alerted about this transaction. The FBI just missed it somehow, which was a huge error on their part. While Beth was alone in the RV, she pulled off the blinds of a window and she saw that a few teenagers were passing by the RV outside. She actually yelled out to them for help and she told them that she was abducted. But the teenagers actually laughed at her and told her that she shouldn't make up stories. And then they just left her. I can't even imagine how frustrating and upsetting that must have been for Beth. I mean, she tried to get help and ask for it, but they didn't believe her. After this trip to Chicago, they returned back to Roseville and once again, Mary and Beth were put inside the closet. The days continued and as we know, on Father's Day, Beth was allowed to quickly call her father. Then on July 4th, 50 days into captivity, Ming decided to take them all to see the fireworks. They drove in his van and before they got out, Ming reminded them that if they tried anything, he would kill them. Moments after that, a police car actually pulled up right next to them. But Mary later said, quote, I couldn't do a thing about it because he always had his gun and he always had Beth. However, Mary didn't let this opportunity fully pass her by. She actually memorized the phone number on the back of the police car because not all cities actually had 911 yet. So I guess that's why they needed to know the specific phone number to contact the police. That night when they were back in the closet, Mary had Beth memorize the numbers as well. That way, whenever they had a chance to escape, they would know who to call. Two days after this, on July 6, Ming had Mary and Beth sitting at the table with him to play a family game night board game. Again, just shocking how he was trying to play house. Now, that's when Ming told them that they're all moving far away together to a new house. The next day, on their 53rd day in captivity, Ming left the house to go to work and Mary and Beth were chained in the closet. Mary knew that she was running out of time. I mean, this guy was trying to move to a new house, to a new place far away so the further she got from where she was now, the less of a chance that she would be found. So she decided that it was time to make a move. She tried to take apart the door hinges by removing the pin that connects the hinge. And the only tool that she had to use was her own fingernails. So it was a bit of a stretch that this plan was going to work, but Mary knew that she had to try. So Mary held the door with one hand and began trying to pull out the door pin with the other. And surprisingly, it came right out. Mary said that it was like it was greased. So the door was removed, but Beth started to panic. You know, she was terrified because Ming had constantly said to them that if they were caught, he would kill them. Mary recalls slapping Beth's cheek, I guess to kind of like shock her so she would calm down. And then Mary sat her in a chair and said, if God has given us this way of escape, we have to take it. Sure, it's dangerous, but if this is God's way, he's going to protect us. We're chained together, so we have to work together. After this, Beth did calm down a little bit. She accepts the plan and they go into the kitchen to use the phone. Mary dials a phone number that she had memorized from the police car and a dispatcher from that police station answers the phone. Mary says, quote, this is Mary Stoffer. I think you're looking for me and my daughter, Beth. Please hurry. We're being held in a house. He has loaded guns here. He'll kill us and anyone who tries to come in here. Don't try to come in if he's here. The dispatcher then tells her to stay in the house and to stay away from any of the windows. As we know, Mary is then transferred twice and then is told that help is on the way. After that, she hangs up the phone. Now, Beth doesn't want to wait inside and she tells her mom that they should go outside and hide behind the bushes and just wait for the police there. Even though the dispatcher told them to stay in the house, Mary agreed to this plan and they went outside. They left through the back door of the house and decided to hide behind a car. 
What they didn't know is that police were already there, making sure that the area was secure to move in. Because Mary had said to them that Ming had guns and would try to kill anyone who entered the house. So the police broke down the door and entered the house. Moments after that, a police officer sees someone hiding behind a car, and at first, they were worried that it was Ming, but as they got closer, they saw that it was Mary and Beth chained together and hiding. That's the day that Mary and Beth were saved. Beth remembered that day the air smelled sweet, and she remembered the feeling of the sun. She said that there was nothing like the feeling of freedom. Now, after this, as we know, Mary and Beth were taken to the police station, and the officers asked them if Jason is still inside the house. Because remember, at this point, six year-old Jason is still missing. As soon as Mary and Beth hear this, they realize that Ming never let him go because Jason still hadn't been found yet. And remember, he had told them that he had left Jason somewhere where he would be found. So they had no idea what had happened to Jason and detectives needed to find the six-year-old little boy. When Jason's parents heard that Mary and Beth had been found, they were so hopeful. They felt hope that Jason was still alive, but unfortunately that hope was crushed when they were told that Mary and Beth hadn't seen Jason since May 16th, which was over 52 days ago. Because of this, Jason was presumed dead, but investigators could not find his body anywhere. Now, another shocking fact about this case is that Ming's younger brother lived in the basement the entire time. Like the entire time that Mary and Beth were there kidnapped, you know, put inside a closet, there was a brother living underneath the basement. Now he was in college during this time, so he was barely home and he and Ming did not talk. Because remember, Ming was not a good person. He was not a good brother. He abused his brother. So his brother lived there, but didn't have a relationship with Ming whatsoever. So he never really went upstairs to the kitchen or to the main part of the house because he just didn't want to see his brother. He did say that he used to hear footsteps upstairs and some chatter, but that he honestly just thought that Ming had a girlfriend and he remembers thinking to himself, that poor girlfriend, like whoever is stuck with Ming, like God bless her. So when the brother was confronted about this, about how Mary and Beth were there for 52 days, he literally says that he had no idea that this had happened. And I just cannot imagine finding out that your brother had kidnapped two people for 52 days inside your house without you ever even knowing. Anyways, going back to Ming, as we know, he was arrested and he was charged with the rape of Mary and the kidnapping of Mary and Beth. He was also charged with the kidnapping and murder of Jason Wilkman. Ming actually had two trials. His first trial was for Mary and Beth's case and the trial was set to begin in September of 1980. However, right before Ming's trial started, he actually hired another inmate named Richard Green to murder Mary and Beth. Yeah, like this guy just could not give up. It's honestly so disturbing. He didn't want Mary and Beth to testify against him at trial because he knew that then he would be found guilty. So he hired this inmate and paid him $50,000 to murder them. Along with that, he also asked for his help in escaping prison. Ming mailed Richard a $1,000 check with the promise that he will send him $50,000 after he had killed Mary and Beth. However, the FBI had been monitoring Ming's finances and had seen that $1,000 had 
left the account. So they brought in Richard and after two rounds of interviews with the FBI, Richard admitted to them that he had agreed to this deal with Ming. How crazy, imagine being Mary and Beth and finding out that this guy is still trying to get you even from inside of prison. So after trying to hire someone to kill Mary and Beth, Ming had to be assessed to determine if he was fit to stand trial and he told one of the psychiatrists that he knew where Jason Wilkman's body was but that he wouldn't tell them. Before the trial, Mary actually had to watch nine hours of videos of her own rape and abuse two times. First, so that she could help the prosecution put the rapes in sequential order and a second time to help interpret the transcript. I really feel like this could have been done without her. That must have been so traumatizing. I mean, I don't know, like there has to be another way for them to do this. Like shouldn't have to make Mary watch these brutal videos twice. And like, why does the order really matter? I just, I don't know. I just don't think they should have made Mary go through this. So eventually the trial begins and Ming was tried in the federal court in downtown St. Paul in front of Judge Edward Dewitt. And the reason it was a federal court, not state level court, was because the kidnapping happened across state lines. The only video played in court was the three hour interview that Ming first recorded when he introduced himself to Mary and asked her questions. Mary was the first to testify. She had to walk between the prosecution and defense's table to get to the witness stand. So she had to pass Ming while doing this. Mary eventually reached the witness stand and the prosecutor Tom Berg began his questioning, but Tom could sense that something was happening behind him. Tom turned to see that Ming had stood up in his seat and was lunging towards Mary yelling, bitch. Tom immediately grabbed Ming and blocked him from getting to Mary. Eventually, federal marshals intervene and they wrestled Ming to the ground. This is all just crazy to me. First of all, because Ming should have pleaded guilty so that there was no trial and so Mary wouldn't have to testify and be there in the first place. But second, I don't understand why Ming needed to be in the same room for Mary's testimony. It's just shocking that Mary had to pass him and then also had to deal with him trying to lunge an attacker. So the federal trial lasted for 10 days and in October, Ming was found guilty of kidnapping Mary and Beth. However, the sentencing was withheld because in between his guilty verdict and sentencing day, Ming made an agreement with the Ramsey County Attorney's Office. He would tell them where Jason's body was if he could avoid a first-degree murder charge. The attorney's office agreed and in late October, Ming led the police to the Carlos Avery Wildlife Reserve. Ming walked to the tree line at the edge of a cornfield and said that this is where the body should be. A search party looked for Jason's body the whole day, but they just couldn't locate it. However, Ming insisted that it had to be there. He said, quote, it's gotta be there. I know it. You just gotta find it. Finally, one of the searchers found a child skeleton in a dense area with a lot of bushes and vegetation, right at the edge of the cornfield and under a line of birch trees. The skeleton was covered with branches and cornstalks. The skeleton was confirmed to belong to six-year-old Jason. An autopsy report revealed that he had two fractures on the back and the right side of his skull. They determined that the cause of death was cerebral trauma that could have been caused by a blow from a blunt object. Jason was hit with the object twice and either one of the blows could have been the one that killed him. Now, in terms of the murder weapon, the pathologist said that it seemed like Jason had been hit by a metal instrument that had a curve on it kind of like a jack handle. The murder weapon could have been the car's missing tire iron or the barrel of Ming's gun. And it just breaks my heart to think about how Ming just put Jason's little body in this field all alone. I mean, this is like a six-year-old little kid and he literally 
was just outside playing with his friend that day, had plans to go see his grandparents the next day, and then this terrible thing had to happen to him. So once Ming upheld his kidnapping of the deal, Ming was sentenced to life in prison for the kidnapping of Mary and Beth. Ming's second trial began on January 14, 1981 in Anoka County District Court, and this was a trial for the kidnapping and murder of Jason. The jury was carefully selected over three weeks from a group of 338 jurors and 14 were chosen to be on the panel. So Ming actually requested that his second trial take place in two phases. In phase one, he would be tried to determine if he was guilty for Jason's kidnapping and murder in the second degree. And then if he is found guilty in phase two, the jury would decide if Ming was actually innocent because of a mental defect. Now, I didn't know that this was a thing. I mean, how often does this happen? What's crazy is that they actually allowed this. So he did have two different trials. So for the second trial, Mary was once again the first witness called to the stand to testify. She was pretty much the main witness in Jason's kidnapping since she saw how everything went down. So it made sense that she would have to testify. Again, I don't know why Ming just didn't plead guilty to this because he literally told them where he put the body. So obviously he kidnapped him. Now it was the third day of the trial and Mary was testifying. It was time for the defense attorney to begin their cross-examination. And that's when at 3.10 PM, Ming jumped up from his seat, ran up behind Mary, grabbed her by the neck and held a knife in front of her. This literally happened in front of the jury and everyone in the court. How was he able to run across a room and over to her is truly shocking to me. And the fact that he was able to get a knife into the court, like how does that even happen and what was going on in this court? I've just never heard of something like this happening before. Ming actually sliced Mary's face from her chin to the corner of her mouth. She felt like he was claiming her by doing this and it was kind of a message of if I can't have her, no one can. Then Ming wrapped both arms around Mary's neck while holding the knife in one hand. Ming yelled out to everyone, get back or I'll kill her. Mary's glasses were knocked out of her face and she screamed for someone to do something. Before Mary even took the stand, FBI agent Samuel had warned her that Ming might try to do something again. So I don't know why nobody took any measures to protect her from Ming. Another witness who was set to testify after Mary actually happened to be a lieutenant and he was standing just outside the courtroom when he saw Ming grab Mary and he actually rushed to her help. So luckily people ignored Ming's threats to stay back and three officers wrestled with Ming and tried to grab his knife. An officer also got a cut on his hand as he grabbed the knife. The spectators in the courtroom were just absolutely livid this was happening and screamed for the officers to get Ming and to kill him. Thankfully, Mary was rescued and taken to the judge's chambers and Ming was tackled to the floor in handcuffs. Court was actually dismissed until 10 a.m. the next day. Mary actually had to get 62 stitches to close the three inch long cut on her face at Mercy Hospital. An officer stated that if Ming had gotten her throat, she would have been dead. This is just all so shocking and disturbing. So of course, police launched an investigation into how Ming was able to get the three and a half inch knife into the courtroom in the first place because Ming was supposed to be searched each time he left and entered his jail cell. So how did this happen? After this attack, the judge asked psychiatrists to examine Ming to see if he was really competent to stand trial. They thought that this violent attack could be as a result of a mental illness, but it turns out that Ming was completely fit to stand 
trial. So not mentally ill, just a terrible, awful person. So this meant that now the jury was also going to consider this attack as they made their decision about finding Ming guilty. The trial continued and on February 13th, 1981, the jury found the charges against Ming could absolutely be proven beyond a reasonable doubt and now it was time for the second phase of the trial. The second phase began the very next day on February 14th, 1981. This is the phase where the jury would decide if Ming was innocent because of a mental defect. For this trial, the interview style videos that Ming had made with Mary when he first kidnapped her were actually played to the court. At first, the jury just wanted to see one and then they asked to see more. In this taped conversation, Ming made references to Jason. Ming could be seen saying, quote, the only thing that changed my plan was that kid showing up. I had dark glasses on and I scared him good enough so he won't tell. There's no way he can get back to me, end quote. So while the tapes were being played, the judge had excused Mary from the courts so that she wouldn't have to watch them and re-traumatize herself. She was then brought back into the room for the last few questions. Mary was asked if she ever told Ming that she loved him during her captivity and Mary said that she didn't. Then she was asked if she ever said it in a Christian sense. The defense was about to ask her another question when a scream rang through the courtroom. It came from Ming, who had seemed pretty antsy from the beginning of the trial that day. Did he do this to seem crazy, you know, like just to let out a random scream so the jury would have sympathy? Or is it because he was just upset and he couldn't control his anger? So the jury went on to deliberate and on February 20th, 1981, at about 2.40 p.m., the jury sent a note to the court. They said that they were a hung jury and asked what they should do now. The judge suggested that the jury continue watching the rest of the tapes, but they did not tell Ming's counsel that they had made this suggestion until 6.08 p.m. that same day, when they made the following statement in court. It said, quote, it was my opinion at the time that we have spent almost five weeks on this case and they had deliberated yesterday and today less than 10 hours and that wasn't sufficient to constitute a so-called hung jury. It is now 10 after 6 and we have received another note. It reads as follows. We are still a hung jury. One juror is close-minded to others' views and is becoming upset and distraught. So inadvertently, it appears that they have advised us that the vote is 11 to 1. Now, when Ming's attorneys heard this, they demanded a mistrial. They argued that the jury was hung twice and that the defense was not even informed of the note that they had sent at first. Also, the fact that the judge encouraged the jury to look at more evidence when they didn't request it felt like they were trying to get the jury to rule a certain way. So the defense said even if the vote was 11 to 1, the one juror who had the different opinion should not be forced to change his stance, especially because the juror was already upset. He may even be more susceptible to changing his original stance and just kind of going along with the popular opinion. So the defense was arguing that this was coercive, but the court denied this accusation that the jury had formally requested to look at all three videotapes. And the only thing the court suggested was that they look at each tape individually, come back to the courtroom to discuss it and do the same for the rest of the tapes. So they denied the motion to move to mistrial. And the next day on February 21st, 1981, the jury found Ming sane and guilty for the kidnapping and murder in the second degree. So in 
response, Ming's counsel filed a motion for judgment for acquittal or for a new trial in court. The defense also questioned some members of the jury after reading articles and interviews that they gave to local papers. The defense argued that one juror had more knowledge of Ming's previous conviction in Mary and Beth's case than she had let on before. Again, the court denied this motion and said that the defense counsel had an opportunity to make an inquiry about the juror when the trial was ongoing, but they didn't do that. Ming was sentenced to 40 years in prison for the murder of Jason Wilkman. On July 6, 2010, when he was 59 years old, Ming actually became eligible for mandatory release. And mandatory release allows inmates to be released from jail after they have served a specified amount of time in jail. But his request was denied. In addition, the prosecutors wanted him, but that didn't apply to Ming. His defense argued that Ming would be better off out of prison and receiving treatment for being a sex offender at another facility. Ming did express remorse for his crime and said that he devastated Mary and ruined her life. He also said that he had a schoolboy crush on her that just went a little bit too far, which is an understatement. I mean, a little schoolboy crush is one thing, but stalking someone and then kidnapping them for 52 days is a whole other thing. It was argued by prosecutors that he was just trying to make himself good to get out of prison by saying that. And his defense also said that now Ming was 59 years old, that he had arthritis and kidney problems. So he was physically incapable of offending again, which is even a a crazy thing to say, like just because someone has a kidney issue doesn't mean they're not going to do something bad. This point was countered by psychologist Amanda Sawyer, who said that Ming does not believe that he is a sexual offender and he just thinks that he took things too far. She diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder and sexual sadism and said that because Ming doesn't think he is a sexual offender and needs help, he is highly likely to commit a similar crime again. A psychologist brought by the defense said that Ming did not feel any sexual arousal in Anymore, but he even agreed that he should not be given parole without proper treatment. Dr. Reithmans, who was hired by the state, said that Ming is a violent sex offender and violent sex offenders are not into sexuality. They are into violence and power. So it doesn't matter that Ming doesn't have those urges anymore. Now, Mary and Beth both actually attended these trials in 2010. By this point, Mary and Irv had retired and Beth was all grown up. She was 38 years old. By this point, Mary had for given Ming for what he did, but she felt like if Ming got out, he would be a danger to society. And Beth agreed. While testifying, she brought up the fact that Ming had warned that he would kill her and if she was dead, he would kill her future children if he ever got out. Beth said that she wouldn't feel comfortable sending her kids out in public to the mall or to the playground knowing that Ming was out there. Beth also said that Ming did not ruin her or her mother's life. After the kidnapping, they went back to lead the life that they had always meant to one of devotion and missionary work. After the kidnapping, Mary and Irv continued to split their time between the US and the Philippines. Beth said that Ming ruined his own life, not her life. While ruining his own life, he had also taken an innocent young boy's life. Six-year-old Jason did not deserve to die and there was literally no excuse for killing him so brutally. On September 28, 2010, a judge ruled that Ming would not be released as he was still a threat to society and that he would actually spend the rest of his life in prison where he remains to this day. As for Mary, she and her husband have retired and they appear to be living a happy life. She often talks about what happened to her and to her daughter 
daughter but says that this doesn't define them. She refuses to let her life get ruined because of another person's hatred. Mary and Beth both have appeared on numerous shows to recount their experiences. There was also a movie made in 2019 called Abducted the Mary Stauffer Story. Mary says that having her story portrayed on screen shows other survivors that they're not alone and that their traumas don't have to define them. She said, quote, I think many people have gone through really bad things. They need to see that there's life after this. I'm so happy that Mary, Beth, and her family are living a good life now and that they've been able to, in a way, move on from this. It's honestly such a miracle that they survived for 52 days and I am just so happy that they were found alive, that they were reunited with their family. Thankfully, Ming is going to spend the rest of his life behind bars because I can't even imagine how scary it would be for the family if he was released. As for Jason's family, it's just must be absolutely heartbreaking for them to know that, I mean, Jason didn't even know Mary and Beth. You know, he just happened to be at the park looking at Ming's car and because of that, Ming abducted him and then killed him in such a brutal way. He could have just let Jason go. I mean, he was just a six-year-old kid. There's no way he would have remembered the license plate or anything like that. So it's really unfortunate that Ming had to take away this little boy's life, but like I said, thankfully, justice was served and he will be behind bars for the rest of his life. All right, you guys, that is pretty much all the information that I have for today's video. Thank you guys so much for being here and for taking the time to listen to what happened to Mary and Beth Stoffer and Jason Wilkman. If you're part of the hashtag audio familia, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you go watch the video version later on my channel, make sure to leave me a comment letting me know that you're from the hashtag audio familia. Don't forget to rate, follow, and review what happened wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to my YouTube channel, True Crime Jack for full video episodes. You can also find me on Instagram and on TikTok at True Crime Jackie. Bye guys.